0: Uh, The scripture for this morning comes from Judges 17. It's a little bit of an unfamiliar story, but it's going to be fun. (laughs) Um, Now a man, Micah, from the hill country of Ephraim, said to his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you, and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the eleven hundred shekels of silver to his mother, she said i solemnly consecrate my silver to the lord for my son to make me a a carved image and a cast idol and i will give it back to you so he returned the silver to his mother and she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who made them into the image and the idol and they were put in micah's house now this man micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and some idols and installed one of his sons as a priest In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the plan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, Where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, Live with me, and be my father and priest, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man was to him like one of his sons. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. We're at the end of a short mini-series on worship, and we're running through a few examples in the Old Testament about how not to worship, because the way we worship matters. It's meant to transform us and align us with God's will. But sometimes, it's hard to recognize how we're supposed to worship. But it's easier to, worship, to see worship go wrong and learn from that. In our first week, we learned about the story of Jonah and how he's a person who never really examined himself. As a result, he ended up worshiping in a way that made no sense at all, and was frankly really stupid. He prayed a huge, long, eloquent prayer, thanking God for saving him from the people he hated. But really, he should have been praying a prayer of repentance, because he was the one that was messing up. It turns out, he was completely in the dark about the kind of attitude that he was supposed to have. He didn't understand God at all. And that taught us that when we worship, we need to be able to look at ourselves and make sure that we're doing what God wants us to do. Because if we're not, then a lot of times, our worship will only make ourselves more delusional. Repentance is an important thing to do before you come to worship. Then last week, we came to the story of Amos with the Israelites. The Israelites basically wanted to give to God at the least they possibly could in the amount of worship. And just like Jonah, they were completely delusional about what God thought about that worship. They thought that God was totally on their side because their kingdom was really prosperous. But actually, God wasn't on their side, and they wouldn't be prosperous for much longer. They loved to do really unjust things, like, as Amos says, selling the poor for a pair of sandals, or building up huge houses on the backs of slaves. Their society was completely unjust. It was so bad that their worship only made things worse. God was basically saying, how can you go on singing songs and making sacrifices to me and then go home and treat people like that? That way, the worship the Israelites offered was basically itself sinned. In modern terms, God said, go to your places of worship and sin. Go to your churches and sin yet more, because that is what you love to do. They loved to worship, but their worship was sin. All their beautiful songs were just basically annoying noise to God because of how they were living. God was saying, let's stop pretending that you actually care about me when you're worshiping. Just like Jonah, the people in Amos were delusional, and they wouldn't face reality until it was too late. So we talked a lot about how we need repentance before we come to worship in the last two weeks. So let's take an example of someone who looks like they're repenting, but does it all wrong. Now, we come to a bit of an unfamiliar chapter in Judges. If you know anything about the book of Judges, you know that the Israelites weren't very good in this book. Basically, the gist of the book is that the Israelites were constantly disobeying God, and so different invaders came in and started oppressing them. They would call out to God, and then they would raise up a judge to save them because God was really merciful. The Israelites would be happy for a short while, but then they would go on to worship other gods. They wouldn't follow the law and eventually they would be right back where they started. Through this whole time, God was merciful and always saved the Israelites, even though they definitely didn't deserve it. It wasn't only a vicious cycle, but things were actually continually getting worse. The first judge to save Israel was Ehud, who, in superhero terms, was basically Captain America or Spider-Man. He had strong conviction about what was right and wrong. He worshiped God the way he was supposed to, and he single-handedly saved Israel from Moab. But slowly, these judges got worse and worse every time, until he get to the last judge, who was Samson. Samson, in superhero terms, was something closer to Deadpool. He had no real convictions or moral compass. There were only two things he really cared about. All he ever wanted was sexual gratification and revenge. And everyone in the whole world knew about it. In fact, that was the way his enemies were able to tra- trap him. Where before, Ehud had saved Israel by tricking a foreign king. Now Samson, the Israelite, was the one being tricked. Samson wasn't a just and wise ruler. In fact, he probably couldn't be called a ruler at all. He was basically just a raging fire that destroyed everything in his path until he destroyed himself. So when you get to this chapter, right after the story of Samson, what you're hoping is that maybe you'll find someone to lead Israel who's better than Samson. Maybe Israel isn't so bad, and so this common guy from Ephraim will show that there's good in Israel. In fact, the first sentence of this passage can really lead you to think that things are about to get better. It says, there is a man from the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. The name Micah means, who is like Yahweh? And of course, the answer to that question is no one. Finally, it seems like we have someone who worships God and him only. And this is the kind of person who can lead Israel out of their downward spiral. So since we're hopeful for Israel here, let's keep reading. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels that was taken from you and about which you yourself cursed and said in my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I have taken it. Oops, that, qu- that quickly your hopes are dashed. Not only did Micah take the equivalent of 110 years of wages from his mother, but the way he admits it is absolutely terrible. Notice how many times he says the word you in his speech compared to the number of times he says the word I or me. You cursed, and you said it in my ears. He's basically blaming her a bit for it. Think about when you, as a kid, did something wrong and had to admit it. Let's say you stole a cookie from the cookie jar. She looks at you, your mom looks at you, and you have chocolate all over your face. So you say something like, you put the jar on the ground when you normally put it out of my reach. So that was a mistake for which I'm not responsible. Also, the cookies were subpar compared to your earlier work. Anyway, the cookies are with me. So then you pull out a bunch of cookie crumbs from your pocket because they disintegrated when you shoved them in. And you drop a bunch of them through your hands onto the floor. And so then your mom says, OK, why are they with you? And you have to say, I took them. It's kind of amazing. But the way that Micah admits he stole the silver is exactly the way that, he admits, that we admit that we stole cookies as kids. He starts throwing out these things about all the things his mother did, Ron, after he stole the silver. But finally, he has to admit what happened in the last couple of words. Notice that he doesn't even admit they had anything to do with the missing silver until the very last, like, four Hebrew words of the speech. And his first attempt is kind of hilarious. He says, the silver is with me. And of course, that begs the question, why do you have the silver? Before he finally has to say, I took it. Yeah, this is not the guy who's going to save Israel. He's childish and a little bit pathetic. In case he wanted to give Micah the benefit of the doubt and thought he was being a good person by coming clean, it's pretty clear what his real motive was here. He heard his mother utter a curse, something like, May God make something bad happen to whoever stole this silver. As we know from the rest of the chapter, Micah is a superstitious person who really takes blesses and curses very seriously. And he was probably just afraid of what would happen to him because of the curse. As the reader, you're probably saying something like, I wonder why he mentions the curse. Probably because he wants his mother to reverse it, isn't it? He probably wasn't just coming clean. He was trying to fix this curse that his mother uttered. If you were writing this, you would probably describe how Micah actually stole the silver, Right? Instead, the author makes this interesting decision to start the story right in the middle of things. And that's for good reason. Basically, appalling stories of crime, like kids stealing tons of money from their parents, were so commonplace and boring in Israel at this time that it wasn't even worth describing the actual theft. He's basically saying, oh, you know, when Micah went to confess that he stole money worth a century of labor from his mother, like what was always happening. It's an amazing way that the author just generalizes to be able to say all of Israel was just as childish and pathetic as Micah was. So this slow downward spiral by each of the judges only represents Israel itself. You would like to think that maybe the leaders of Israel were going downhill, but at least the regular people were okay. This chapter really makes clear that that's not the case. It was a case study that showed that all of Israel was really going downhill completely disobeying God in unthinkable ways. Here you have a nice look into what normal Israelites were like at this time, and they just might have been worse than their leaders. Apparently, it was just completely normal for at this time for sons to rob their mothers. In the last couple of weeks, we talked about how worship is a wonderful thing. We talked about how it's the only hope for the world. But we also talked about how worship is dangerous. Worship has a powerful ability to, to confirm your delusions. When you worship, you can convince yourself that God is on your side and that he approves of whatever you're doing. You can trick yourself into thinking that you're worshiping the one true God when you're really worshiping this God you made up in your head that likes what you're doing. You can be like Jonah, singing songs of salvation when you should be repenting. You can be like Israel at the time of Amos, convincing yourself that God is coming soon to reward you when really you're teetering on the edge of disaster. We saw that taking a hard look at yourself and repenting by the power of the Spirit is one of the most important things you can do when you come to worship. Well, here, Micah and his family have an opportunity to worship in repentance and fix everything that we saw in those two Old Testament passages. Micah is about to do some worship stuff, but it looks like he's going to repent for stealing silver, and that's exciting. So let's see what they do. Micah's mom wants to reverse the curse So one thing you might do during that time to fix that curse is make an offering to the gods. So they take a tiny little bit of the silver that Micah stole and they take it to the local silversmith, they melt it down, and they make an idol out of it, and they dedicate that idol to God. Okay, yeah, not good. So there's a number of things wrong with what they did there. First of all, we know from the Ten Commandments that the Israelites were not supposed to be making idols dedicated to God. Did anybody know that at this time? It really doesn't look like it. In fact, it's interesting that the author even mentions the silversmith in this story, right? I mean, the story could totally work without him. And it's not like the author is afraid to skip large bits of the story. He already skipped a bit about the silver being stolen. But I think the point that he makes in including the silversmith is that there were tons of people in Israel ready and willing to completely mess up the law by making idols if you needed them. It doesn't look like Micah and his mom had any problems finding someone willing to do something that was completely wrong. Now, in case you were wondering why God was so against having idols made dedicated to him, let me put a picture in your head of what's happening here. The text said that Micah had a house of gods. He had an ephod and household gods. In other words, he had a bunch of other little idols like the one that he just made. So you walk into Micah's house, and you look to your left and your right, and you see a bunch of rows of little statues to the gods. And if you squint, you might be able to make out that one of them was dedicated to God himself. If you remember, Micah's name means who is like Yahweh. And of course, the answer is supposed to be no one. But apparently, when you walk into Micah's house, the answer is, all these other gods lined up on my shelf next to him. Just like all the other gods in this this house, the statue that Micah made to the real God was nothing more than a good luck charm to make sure that he prospers a bit in life. A second thing, the total amount of silver which Mita stole was 1,100 shekels, which would make for a decent-sized idol. It would make sense, you know, for if they were going to make an idol, to take that full 1,100 shekels and melt it down and make a nice-sized idol as a tribute. That's a good way to honor God in the ancient world, even if it's not what God actually wants. Instead, all they do is take 200 shekels, or about 5 pounds, out of the 1,100 and make an idol out of that. And of course, once you like, melt it down, you're not going to be using the full five pounds either. So not, it's not just that they were misguided in making an idol at all, which they totally were. It was that they did it completely half-heartedly. In Micah's house with all the statues to the gods, the statue for the real god might have been the smallest one. They weren't only doing something misguided. They were doing the bare minimum, too. They made a tiny little five-pound idol to get god off their backs. That's not the kind of repentance that God would be looking for when we come to worship. But sometimes we do similar things. Coming to worship and saying we're sorry for doing something with full intention of doing it again is like making a tiny little five-pound idol to get God off our backs. It's half-hearted, and it only makes things worse. It shows you don't actually respect God. You just want to do the bare minimum to make sure he blesses you, or at least that he doesn't curse you. But everyone can see through it. You can see through it. And so can God. He's not stupid. So Micah has this big house of gods. And of course, he gets one of his sons to be his priest. Surely, God is happy with him now. I mean, look at all the things he's done to get his favor. He made an idol, right? That's what God wants, isn't it? So then he sees a Levite who is basically a refugee wandering around trying to find a place to stay. Apparently, he knows that Levites are all kind of like specialized priests. So he has the idea that the Levite might be better at getting God to be happy with him than his son. So basically he says, Who needs my son? I'll hire this Levite to be my priest. The Levite is happy with it, because he gets paid pretty well to just sit in this little house of gods, like one of them, those idols. Then the saddest thing happens at the very end of the passage. Micah says, Surely God will bless me now, I have a Levite as a priest. This whole time, Micah was doing all this stuff in order to get God to bless him. And he seriously had no idea what he was doing. He tries to get God to reverse the curse his mother gives him. He makes all these idols, and he gets a Levite as a good luck charm. Of course, we know that practically everything that he did to try to get God's favor and to worship him the right way was actually the exact opposite of what he should have been doing. Mike is not a great guy, but you can't help but feel sorry for him, because it really seems like he doesn't know what he's doing. It doesn't seem like anyone really taught him what worshiping God really looks like. And so he's just floundering around, following his intuitions, and doing what he thinks makes sense, and he has no tradition that's grounding him. In other words, it doesn't seem like his parents really did a good job of teaching him how to worship the right way. One character that's absent in this narrative is his father. What happened to him? Is he not very involved? Has he died? We don't know. But I really do think that we're supposed to ask that question because Micah asked the Levite, who is a young man, probably too young to be, get married, to be his father and priest. It's kind of weird, isn't it, for a grown man who has children of his own to ask some 16-year-old to be his father? But ultimately, that's what Micah needs. He needs someone to give instruction about how to worship and obey God, and he just doesn't get it. And so what ends up happening is that he tries to get God's favor by doing things that are the exact opposite of what God wants. What this passage shows is that just about two generations after the Israelites entered the Promised Land, they forgot everything about the Torah. The Torah was constantly talking about ways the Israelites were supposed to remember the story of how God saved them. The holiday of Passover was pretty much just a way for people to relive the story of what, when Israel was saved from Egypt. God's instruction was important, and we need to pass it down and teach it, or we'll see people acting like Micah, trying desperately to get God's favor and doing it in all the wrong ways. It's helpful for us to pass down our traditions so that later generations don't get stuck making the same mistakes that we do and ma- learning the same lessons that we do. We wouldn't get very far if every generation we had to learn the same lessons over and over again. So it's good for us to look back at the traditions that are passed down to us and give them the benefit of the doubt so that we're not just making up worship as we go along. The people who teach Sunday School and Bible Studies here are doing something really important. Sure, we'd really like people to have changed hearts, but knowing some really basic things about the gospel is really important so we don't turn into Micah. Worship is a lot better at transforming you when you know the basics about what you're doing. One of the results of this like clueless and bad worship is that practically everyone in this story is doing everything for themselves. Micah steals from his mother. The silversmith is purposely willing to accept some money to make an idol. The Levite loves the idea of getting paid a bunch of money to hang out at Micah's shrine that has all this kind of false gods. Even Micah's mother only dedicates a piddly amount of silver to God in order to forgive her son. In the next chapter, the Levite even sells Micah out so he can get more money. There's no loyalty in this passage. A son isn't supposed to steal from his mother. A silversmith isn't supposed to take money for, for, to make evil things. And a Levite isn't supposed to take advantage of a guy who doesn't know how to please God. Some people might say, These people should have been able to figure out what they were doing was wrong without instruction or tradition. Our capacity for reason is a wonderful thing, but it's also imperfect. And one of the main reasons is that we're often really biased toward doing selfish things. If you think about it enough, you could probably convince yourself that anything is right if it's something you want. The silversmith could say, well, Mike is going to find someone else to make the idol anyway. I guess it's better I profit from it than someone else does. The Levite could be saying, well, if I'm helping Micah to think God is on his side and I'm making a little bit of money, what's the harm? Without the instruction of uh, scripture, the tradition of our ancestors, and the worship of our God in transforming us, we are really likely to just use our reason to justify us being selfish. It's human nature. In this series, we've talked a lot about how worship is a dangerous thing, But that's because worship is a powerful thing. After all, the most powerful things are often the most dangerous. It's a lot easier to mess up using something powerful like a chainsaw than it is to mess up using a plastic spoon. It's a lot easier to mess up worship than it is to mess up scrolling on your phone. Because when we come to worship, we're really coming close to what we were made to do from the very beginning. When we worship the right way, we are slowly conformed to the person that we were always meant to be. We become more and more our true selves, the kind of person who finds total fulfillment in serving God and their neighbor. But we can also mess up our worship. If we come to worship convincing ourselves that things are all hunky-dory, when we really need to repent, we just might delude ourselves long enough that our false worship shapes us into something different. If we make it seem like the way that we worship has nothing to do with doing justice and loving mercy, we might just delude ourselves into joining the kingdom of this world rather than the kingdom of our Lord. And those delusions will only last until reality smacks us in the face, hopefully soon, but maybe when God comes again in judgment. To make sure that stuff doesn't happen, we got to make use of our resources. Scripture, our traditions, and the person sitting next to you at church are really important resources to instruct us that we aren't all making the same mistakes over and over again and learning the same lessons over and over again, like Micah in this story, because we just can't afford to waste time doing that. It'd be like turning on a chainsaw without ever watching another person use it and without even looking at the instruction manual. Worship is just too dangerous and too powerful, but it's the most important way that God makes us into the kind of person we were always meant to be. And thank God he's here with us now, helping us all to worship the right way. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the living wisdom of God through which all things were made. Teach us how to worship the way that you did so we can be transformed into your likeness. Amen.